I'd like to read from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, you might like to turn to that if you have a copy of the Bible with you. And I'm going to read from verse 11 uh, of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I know that the pattern and tradition here is to stand for the reading of Scripture. So I'm going to invite you to stand as I read this text together. So let's please stand with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning at verse 11. Therefore, Knowing the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade others, but we ourselves are well known to God, and I hope that we are also well known to your consciences. We're not commending ourselves to you again, says the Apostle Paul, but giving you an opportunity to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast in outward appearance and not in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you, for the love of Christ urges us on, because we are convinced that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised for them. From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view, even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view. We know him no longer in that way. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Amen. Please be seated. A recent report uh, of a long-running survey by the Hansard Society reported that the UK public is ever more willing to entertain the idea of authoritarian leaders who would ignore parliament. They say that public faith in the political system has reached a new low in the 16 years that they've been conducting this survey. 54% of the people they surveyed agreed with the statement that Britain needs a strong ruler willing to break the rules. The reasons are not hard to understand. The Brexit fiasco has led many people, whether Remainers or Leavers, to despair. Our political class are often seen as largely self-serving, privileged, or ideologically driven and remote from the experience and concerns of ordinary people. Poor Mrs May, for all her decency, is often seen as incompetent. Jeremy Corbyn is seen as indecisive and ineffective. The leader of the Lib Dems, the oh yes, the leader of the Lib Dems, Vince Cable, is seen as well past the capacity to provide leadership. And up steps Nigel to fill the void. Nigel Brexit Farage, the no-nonsense, plain-speaking man of the people who can manage to set up a new party and be ahead in the polls within a month. A strong voice, offering strong, uncompromising leadership. And the same is true in Northern Ireland. It would appear that people still here want a particular kind of strong leadership that they vote for, a leadership focused on what you manage to deliver for your own tribe. 
And let's not get into discussing Mr. Trump in the USA, Mr. Putin in Russia, Erdogan in Turkey, Bashir in Syria, Kim Jong-un in North Korea. A trek around the world will take you to many of the same kinds of issues. For many people in our world today, it's all about strong leadership, about being seen to be strong, about serving yourself and your particular tribe, and people seem to crave it or tolerate it as they crave the certainty and security they want. It was no different in Corinth in the first century when Paul wrote this second letter to the Corinthian church. It's a church that he had spent much of his own time and effort planting. But going with the spirit of the age, the Christians in Corinth wanted strong leadership. And because Paul demonstrated leadership in weakness, in God's power, not his own power, the Corinthians were no longer impressed with him. Desiring powerful leaders and preachers, some in the church in Corinth had attacked Paul as inferior. And so much of this letter in 2 Corinthians is about Paul wanting them to see that his apparent weakness was the result of living faithfully in a Christ-like manner amongst them. I have to be honest, I don't enjoy reading 2 Corinthians much. There are some real gems in it, but it's almost depressing the way Paul has to argue the validity of his apostleship to people for whom he had given so much of himself in the first place to bring them the good news of the gospel. And our reading this morning that we've just heard puts us right in the middle of this messy situation and messy relationship. But at the same time, the passage raises a number of issues that we would do well to reflect on. The first one comes in verse 14. For the love of Christ urges us on because we are convinced that one has died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all so that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who died and was raised for them. I think of that as the debt of discipleship. People used to talk about how, you know, you might know Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. There is actually no such distinction. To come to know Jesus is to know Him as Lord or not know Him at all. And Paul makes no bones when he writes to the Corinthians about the fact that they are indebted to him and his ministry, and that of Silas and Timothy, who along with him gave so much of themselves to bring the gospel to this community. It is a little depressing to read that he has to remind them of the cost involved in his apostleship, the physical the mental and the spiritual cost that was involved in bringing the gospel to them. In the previous chapter, in chapter 4, he talks about how we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, persecuted, struck down, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be visible in our bodies. Death is at work in us, he says, but life is at work in you. And it's relentless the way from chapter 6 onwards to the end. Paul has to continue to develop this kind of theme. And in chapter 6, he says to them, We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We're not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. It's a difficult relationship, and it's all about leadership and the strength of leadership that they want. 
They need to remember that they are seriously indebted to Paul and Silas and Timothy as the authentic messengers of God, but more importantly, they need to remember that the motivation behind this apostleship was love, the love of Christ manifested in their lives and manifested in their ministry and the love of Christ for them as people. The costly, sacrificial love of Christ that calls out from Paul and Silas and Timothy and from the Corinthians and from us a discipleship that those who live in the glory and the fruit of Christ might live no longer for themselves but for Him who died and was raised for them. There are many ways in which we come to faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, looking around this room, there are as many stories of how people became Christians as there are people sitting in this room. But however we got to this point, and however we find ourselves here this morning, the one uniting factor is that we share an indebtedness to Jesus that binds us to, that commits us to, a life of discipleship. It's part of the deal. And those words, no longer living for ourselves, but for Him who died and was raised for us, have profound implications for our lives. It speaks of a radical life change, a change of mindset, a change of attitudes, a change of values, a change in how we see the world. Uh, obviously, I'm in no position to dictate to anyone else in this room this morning what that should mean at this particular time for you in your life. You have to work that out. But I think it's good for us to hear these words. In fact, it might be good for us to hear them by saying them together in a slightly different form. Maybe in the form, no longer living for myself, but for him who died and was raised for me. Would you say that with me? no longer living for myself, but for Him who died and was raised for me. That's the implication of the text. Secondly, while it's not my place to dictate to you what no longer living for yourself, but for Him who died and was raised for you should look like in practice in your life at this moment, I can, on the basis of verse 16, be specific about something that applies to us all. Verse 16 says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view, even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view, for we know Him no longer in that way. The scope of what Paul says here in verse 16 goes much further than simply Paul speaking about his relationship with the Corinthians and how he sees them. And Paul illustrates the point he's trying to make by speaking about how he came to see Christ differently. We don't know if Paul ever met Jesus or if he was present at the trial of Jesus before the chief priest, and he might have been because he would have been entitled to be there because of his status. We don't know whether he was an agitator in the crowd encouraging the people to shout, crucify, crucify. But if he had been there, he certainly would have been doing that. Whether or not he was there at the trial, his pathological hatred and persecution of the early believers made it clear that he had nothing but disdain for this crucified Jew. For Paul, the idea of a crucified Messiah was anathema. 
When he was Saul of Tarsus, he could see that only as a vile heresy, an evil that had to be eradicated from the face of the earth, and he saw it as his life's mission to do that. That's how he saw Jesus, from a merely human point of view. His view of Gentiles wouldn't have been much better. He would have simply seen them as heathen idol worshippers. But here he is now, finding glory in the crucified Christ, loving him, serving him, suffering for him. Here he is now, a messenger to the Gentiles, loving them, serving them, suffering for their sake. His deep understanding of the sacrificial love of Jesus and the privilege of sharing in the glory of the resurrection changed everything. From now on, he no longer regards anyone from a human point of view, even though he once regarded Christ that way. In a world that appears to be becoming more polarized, we need to ensure, as disciples of Jesus, that we don't view people from a merely human point of view. In a world of sectarian attitudes, we need to be different. In a world that is too easily divided into nationalist and unionist, leavers or remainers, Catholics or Protestants, immigrants or locals, Muslims or Christians, perpetrators or victims, able-bodied or disabled, working class or educated, in a world that tells us how we should be thinking about ourselves with all its advertising and its promotion, in a world that tells us how we should be thinking about other people and putting our distance between them, as Christians, we no longer regard anyone from a human point of view if we are disciples of Jesus. As followers of Jesus, we will not be able to validate everyone's opinions. We will not be able to condone the actions or moral choices of everyone. But we will. We must no longer regard them from a merely human point of view as someone simply on our side or against us, someone we can embrace or someone beyond the bounds of love. The events of Easter Sunday just a week ago in Sri Lanka were unspeakably awful. I sat in church in Amsterdam at one and the same time enjoying the celebration of the Easter service with the orchestra and the choir and the magnificent hymns and the packed congregation, and at the same time feeling sick at the thought of the carnage that had taken place in three churches in Colombo and in the hotels. I watched with great sympathy, the Archbishop of Sri Lanka speak to the media in a restrained and dignified manner. But one thing he said that I thought was unfortunate, he described the people who carried out the attacks as animals, as non-humans. We used to hear that language here in Northern Ireland, not without some cause given the terrible things that were done here. But I think that language is unfortunate. People might behave like animals, they might debase our common humanity with cruelty and brutality and immorality, but they're never not people. They're never not part of us. Saul of Tarsus was a violent religious fanatic, a killer. He describes himself in his testimony as a murderer. But even such a brutal personality could be broken down by the love of God.
our communities are becoming more polarized. Language is becoming more harsh sometimes, whether it's in Great Britain or in Northern Ireland. We can't go with that. We mustn't get sucked into the bitterness. There must always be space for grace. There must always be space for grace. We regard no one from a merely human point of view, for in every person we meet or see or hear about, we see the possibility that one day they might sit in the seat beside you here, baptized with the same baptism that you were baptized with, singing the same songs of praise to God that you and I have been singing this morning. It's always possible. That's the nature of the radical approach to grace that God has. It's hard. It's certainly countercultural, but it's Christian. This takes me to the third thing that stands out for me in this passage, which is the ministry of reconciliation. Paul says that in verse 17 and 18, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. The new creation of which Paul speaks is not merely an individualistic thing. It's a new order of existence brought about by Christ's work of reconciliation on the cross. There's a cosmic dimension to it that the Scriptures speak about, like in Colossians chapter 1. Speaking of Jesus, Paul says, God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. There's a human dimension which Paul expresses in Ephesians in chapter 2. He says, In Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That God's purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them, speaking about Jew and Gentile, to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. In Christ, ethnic and religious barriers that divided the world of Paul's day were being broken down in the community of the church. As one expert writing on this passage made the important observation that Paul believed emphatically that for those who were reconciled in Christ, it did not simply free believers from the struggles of the world, but for the struggle in the world. Being united and reconciled in Christ didn't mean believers were freed from all the struggles that go on in society around them, living in a cozy cocoon of Christian fellowship. Being reconciled in Christ prepared him for a ministry of reconciliation in a world of division. Just as Saul was converted to a lifetime ministry of declaring God's reconciling grace in Christ, my, what reconciliation that must have taken for those who were previously persecuted by him, who had lost loved ones at his hands, to be reconciled with Saul of Tarsus, now Paul the Apostle. 
But just as he was converted to a lifetime ministry of declaring God's reconciling grace, just as Paul demonstrated and exercised the ministry of reconciliation by drawing the Gentiles, the outsiders, into the life of the church and actively arguing for them for their right to be here, their right to be included, just as he worked for reconciliation in the life of the church, calling those in conflict with each other to be reconciled in Christ, so we are charged with the same ministry of reconciliation. That our lives together in this community should be something that demonstrates the reconciling grace of God through the death of Christ. But more than that, that our presence outside these walls, our presence in the community, is a presence of reconciliation is a presence that helps people see each other differently. I didn't know Ben was going to take the theme he was doing this morning about seeing the world differently through God's eyes. But that's what this whole passage is about. That's what it's calling us to. There's one other important thing, I think, for us in our context about this ministry of reconciliation. Apparently, in the world of Paul's day, People in Greek and Roman society were not really primarily concerned with the issues of guilt and sin, which are the issues that we as Christians are very often primarily concerned about or speak about primarily. Their concerns were much more about alienation, and their religion was really to address that sense of alienation. It was to appease the gods, to try and be at one with the world, to be at peace among the many and various gods that they had. The stars of the heavens offered little cause for wonderment as they did for the psalmist, but were rather for many people a sinister reminder that your fate was determined by powers that you could only pretend to understand. And Paul's ministry of reconciliation and his preaching of the reconciliation achieved through Christ's death that is there for us in our relationship with God spoke effectively to that disconnected, confused world. It was a world not so different from our own. For our world today is not so concerned about having sinned. In fact, people will ask you, what on earth is sin? Or how dare you call me a sinner? Those are not the issues. The common concern is more to do with alleviating the sense of confusion or alienation, the longing for meaning and significance. And we have a calling to be ministers of the reconciliation affected by God. It's a language we should use unashamedly. It does not belong to somebody else. It is part of what it means to be a Christian, declaring how in Christ God was reconciling creator and created, declaring how in Christ God was reconciling creator with creation, Declaring how in Christ God was restoring broken relationships and how that has an impact on a person's relationship with God, people's relationships with each other, and God's purposes for his creation. There is a ministry of reconciliation that we are charged with and called to exercise that Paul speaks about in this passage. In a letter, 2 Corinthians, that to me at least, feels awkward, at times embarrassing, in which Paul has to defend his apostolic leadership and authority in the face of this Corinthian preference for self-promoting authoritarian leaders. 
Paul defends his Christ-like sacrificial love-driven ministry, and in the process reminds us of our debt of discipleship, not to him, but to Jesus. For the love of Christ urges us on, because we are convinced that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised for them. And he calls us to recognize that from now on, therefore, as disciples of Jesus, we regard no one from a human point of view, even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view, for we know him no longer in that way. And he charges us with our ministry. If anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us a ministry of reconciliation. Thanks be to God, and may God give us the grace to live as he wants us to. Amen.